Will you please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We continue our sermon series through the New Testament book of Ephesians. Today we're looking specifically at verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8. And in these, these two verses, we will encounter a, a bit of a shift in Paul's prayer hymn. You may remember this is a, a prayer hymn that runs from, from verse 3 to verse 14. And as we, as we move through... Uh, this section, this magnificent section of Ephesians 1, uh, we, we are, which is one long sentence of over 200 words in the original Greek text. I am reading the whole section each week, even though we're just looking at part of it, because I want us to, to, to see the theology and the truth in each verse, and each couple of verses, but also I do not want us to, to lose sight of the, the context of the whole passage. But the two verses we're looking at are verses 7 and 8. And in these two verses, we encounter a bit of a shift. And the shift is from eternity past, from before the foundation of the world, into the events of human history. It's a shift from, from heaven to earth. In a sense, we shift from God the Father's work of election and predestination and authoring our redemption and we shift to God the Son's work of accomplishing our redemption. As someone put it, there are times in our study of the New Testament when we find ourselves face to face with the very heart of the gospel, and our text today is such a time. So hear now God's holy, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, sufficient, life-giving word. I'll begin reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. We're going to look at verses 7 and 8 under four headings. We're going to first see the Redeemer. Second, the price of our redemption. Third, the result of our redemption. And the fourth is the richness of our redemption. So the Redeemer, the price, the result, and the richness. So first, the Redeemer. Look with me at the beginning of verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Now, as we move through these two verses, um, at first glance, you're going to say, well, this seems, I like these verses. 
These verses seem like such, such simple and clear verses. I understand what all of this says. This is talking about redemption. This is talking about redemption in his blood. This is talking about the forgiveness of trespasses and sins. And, and this is talking about God's grace. And I, I, I love this. These are very simple verses. In a sense, they are simple verses. But, but my concern for us coming to these verses is that we, we would make too little of them. That, that we would think, okay, I know what these say. I know what these mean. And we would think that because we've spent time in church, most of us. Not all of us, but most of us have spent a lot of time in church. Most of us have spent a lot of time in the Sunday school classes. And, and, and we know these answers. We know these words. We know redemption is you know, a biblical word. We know whenever you come to a Bible-believing church like this one, there's gonna, they're going to talk about the blood of Christ. We know we're going to talk about forgiveness of sins. But what I want us to do, and by God's grace we will do, is we will think about, okay, what do these things really mean? And how do we know what they mean? And I think that we'll see that it really takes the whole Bible in many ways to help us understand what these things mean. So the Redeemer, look again at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The him is Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have redemption. Jesus is the one and only redeemer of God's elect. He's the one and only redeemer of God's people. Jesus says of himself in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We think, okay, yes, Richard, I know that. I love John 14, 6. That's a wonderful verse. Okay, but why is it so? Why is it only through Jesus? You know, what's special about him? The Heidelberg Catechism helps us think through this. Um, uh, Questions and answers 16 and 17 help explain the the exclusivity of Christ as our Redeemer. The first question is, question 16 is, why must he be a true and righteous man? A true man, really a man, fully a man. He must be a true man. Fully man, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man, because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Question 17 asks, why must he at the same time be true God? Why must he be fully man and fully God? Why must he be the God-man? Why, is the, why can the, the God-man be our Redeemer? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath. It might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Only Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully man, fully God, can both pay for the sins of others and bear the burden of God's wrath. Jesus is our Redeemer. This is who he is. This is why he came. This is why he entered our world and took on flesh and dwelt among us. It was to live and to die to redeem his people. And we're going to talk more about the price of our redemption, his blood, which refers to his, to his life and his sacrificial death in a few moments. But, but look again at Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. See, Jesus did many things in his earthly ministry. And we just finished going through the Gospel of John. We saw a lot of these things. 
That Jesus calmed the raging seas, he cast out demons, he cleansed lepers, he opens the, the, the eyes of the blind, he fed the hungry, he healed the sick, he even, he even raised the dead. Yet the overarching purpose of his entering our world and taking on flesh was to be our redeemer. Jesus' purpose was to seek and save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to be our redeemer. So do you know that you need a redeemer? Put another way, do you realize, do we realize, do you realize that your sin is that big of a problem that you need a redeemer? I was talking about this with uh, with Helen Holbrook earlier, and she said that she believed that, that sin is the only abstract word that children perfectly understand. They know what it is. And, and I found that to be true. I found that to be true talking with my own children. They're great children, but they understand sin. I found it to be true talking to you, talking to your children, that we all understand sin. We all understand that there are things that, that we say and that we think and that we do and that we desire that do not honor God. There are things that we say, do, think, and desire that are wrong and that we feel guilty about and that we feel ashamed of, and that we try to hide, and that we know hurt others around us, even those people we're supposed to love best. And we know that other people, even those who are supposed to love us best, they do things, and they say things, and they think things, and they desire things that hurt us, and that wound us. See, we all understand sin. That's, that's why we're all incredibly gifted at being able to point out sin in other people's lives. I mean, we all have that spiritual gift, don't we? That we're all, we all find it quite easy to say, you know what? You, you, you should not have done that. They should not have done that. That was wrong. They ought not to have done that. That was sinful. That was immoral. That was unjust. That was unfair. But where Christians differ from non-Christians is that Christians know that our sin creates an acute need for Jesus. That our sin's a very big problem, a very big problem, a problem big enough that it requires a redeemer. It's a big problem for a couple of reasons. One is that first, we cannot stop sinning on our own. No matter how hard we try, we can't simply, you know, white knuckle our way to being better, to stop sinning. That we can't make enough resolutions. That no matter how hard we try and how committed we are to turning over a new leaf and I'm going to stop doing this bad stuff and I'm going to start doing this good stuff, that we can't do it. And in Mark 7, Jesus tells us why we can't. Because it's not just in the things that we do and that we say, but, but our sin comes from our own hearts. It comes from our hearts. And so we need a Redeemer who can give us a new heart. The other reason why our sin's a big deal is because the Bible tells us that God is holy. He's perfect and perpetually holy, and we all know that we're not. No matter how, even our best efforts fall well short of his perfect standard. His perfect standard is righteousness, and we know that we do not have any self-righteousness of our own. And because God is perfect and holy and we're not, the bad news is that God cannot have anything to do with sin. So our sin's a big problem. And so for God to remain holy, he must deal with our sin justly. That a holy God cannot, must not, will not simply sweep our sin underneath the rug. 
He can't turn a blind eye to it. He can't ignore it. He can't simply say, well, you know what? Girls will be girls. Boys will be boys. It's not a big deal. I know they meant well. Bless their hearts. He must take our sin seriously. That our sin must be paid for. Accounted for. And this is where Jesus, our Redeemer, comes into the equation. Redemption. The New Testament uses three Greek words translated as redemption in our various English translations. Two of those words are very closely related. Uh, They essentially mean to buy, to buy in a marketplace, to buy out of a marketplace. The third Greek word for redemption uh, is the one that we find in uh, Ephesians 1. And its it's root is the, the Greek word luo. Luo, and it means to loosen, to set free, or to deliver by the payment of a price. And so a way to understand this meaning of redemption is to think of you know, the terrible scene of a marketplace where, where slaves are being auctioned off to the highest bidder. And that's indeed a terrible scene, but, but try to imagine such a scenario where there's someone there who is willing and able, willing and wealthy enough to to purchase the slave and to set them free, to set them free by redeeming them, purchasing them, buying them, setting them free by the payment of a price. That's what Paul has in mind in Ephesians 1. That's what Jesus, your Redeemer, did for you, dear Christian. He purchased you from slavery to sin with the redemption price of his own blood. He purchased you. He redeemed you. He set you free from the curse of the law that once hung over you. He set you free from the just and righteous judgment of God that your sins deserve. He set you free from the guilt of your sin, and he set you free from the enslaving, domineering power of your sin over you. To the pastor, Ian Hamilton says, sin is not an occasional troublesome intruder. How often do we think that? It's an enslaving power. See, we've got to stop thinking of our sin as as merely bad habits, occasional bad habits. Richard Phillips goes on and says, Redemption, therefore, speaks of God saving us from a situation we can never get ourselves out of. That sin is our great problem, but even worse, it's a problem that we cannot solve by ourselves. We think of sin as a small thing, Indulgences that do us little harm, especially if nobody seems to be hurt and if we're able to get away with them. But the Bible says that the result of sin is slavery, bondage, and crushing affliction, out of which we are totally unable to escape on our own. You see, we need a Redeemer. The Bible tells us this. But the question is do you know that you need a Redeemer? See, Christians are people who know they need a Redeemer, who know they have a Redeemer. A Christian is a sinner who has been redeemed, who's been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. Been redeemed. You know, lots of our, many of our uh, most beloved hymns of the faith have redemption language in them. Hymns like Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain?, we read, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It's redemption language. Think about that. How many of our beloved hymns have this language in them? There's a reason. 
that Christ as Redeemer, that, that is one of his most precious titles. That's a point that the esteemed seminary professor B.B. Warfield made to incoming students at Princeton Theological Seminary about 100 years ago. He said, there is not one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. This is because Redeemer is the name specifically of the Christ of the cross. Whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. The real thing for you to settle in your minds, therefore, is whether Christ is truly a redeemer to you and whether you find an actual redemption in him. Do you realize that your salvation has been bought? Bought at a tremendous price, at the price of nothing less precious than blood. In that, the blood of Christ, the Holy One of God. So now let's look at that second heading, the price of our redemption. So we see again in Ephesians 1, verse 7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. So the price of our redemption is none other than the blood of Christ. And I think that most of us in this sanctuary would say, yes, Richard, we know this. I'm, I, I'm washed clean from my sin in the blood of Christ. Okay, but do we understand why that is so? It's important that we understand the blood of Christ means the sacrificial death of Christ. See, it means it's absolutely essential and necessary that Jesus did not die in his bed of old age. Rather, he had to die on the cross. That our redemption requires that Jesus die a sacrificial death, a death that was vicarious and substitutionary, an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the elect. Or put another way, Jesus had to suffer the death we deserve in our place and on our behalf to make atonement for our sins. That he paid a debt he did not owe to redeem us who owed a debt that we could not pay. And the whole Bible points us forward to this. The whole Bible points forward to the coming Savior who would redeem God's elect through his own blood. See, we, we know that Jesus' blood, there's something to that that's significant. By his blood, we are washed clean of our sin. But do you realize the whole Bible points us to that? The whole Bible tells us to prepare for this. And the greatest Old Testament example of, of redemption is the Exodus, when God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. So listen to what Exodus 6 says. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. So I will redeem you. I will do it. Well, do you remember how God's people were eventually redeemed out of slavery in Egypt? It's the Passover. Right? The God... The people of God were instructed to take a male lamb without blemish, sacrifice it, and then paint its blood on the doorpost of their home. Then we read in Exodus 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the people were redeemed and set free from slavery in Egypt by the blood of the Passover lambs. 
Then later, the blood of sacrificial animals was continually offered on the altars in the tabernacle, and then on the altars later in the temple. However, that blood was never able and was never truly intended to cleanse the people from their sin. The blood of all those animals ultimately pointed forward to the Savior and the Redeemer who was to come. And this is what the authors of the New Testament tell us. It's what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 9. He, speaking of Christ, our Redeemer, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the fouled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, this is why Jesus was introduced to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, whenever he institutes the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Or as John the Apostle says in Revelation 1, verse 5, to him, to our Redeemer, to Christ, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Paul writes in Romans 3, verses 23 to 25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then in our text, Ephesians 1, verse 7, he simply says, In him we have redemption through his blood. And that's the only place redemption is found, because we need a redeemer. So let me ask you again, do you know that you need a redeemer? See, a Christian is someone who knows that they are a sinner who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And they have not been redeemed by any other way, because there is no other way for them to be redeemed. It's only through Christ, and it's only through his shed blood on the cross. It's only possible that way. And I want to emphasize this because there's a great myth, a great lie that exists in our city and in our culture. And it's the lie of of the cosmic moral accounting system, where God is this cosmic moral accountant, and he looks down from heaven at us, at our lives, how we're living, and the good deeds that we do are credits to our account. And the bad deeds, the sin, the selfish things, the mean things, the cruel things that we do are debits from our account. And the way this lie works is that as long as you finish life in the black with your good outweighing your bad, then you're fine. You get to go to heaven. No one puts it this way, but the way this lie works is that we are able to redeem with our good works, with our good deeds, with the nice things, we can redeem the bad things. We can redeem ourselves from the sin as long as our good outweighs our bad. That no one's perfect, you don't have to be perfect as long as you're better than average. As long as your good outweighs your bad, then you're fine. That you can redeem yourself. You can be a good person. 
But listen to what David Martin Lloyd-Jones says. The cross of Christ is a standing condemnation of every view and philosophy which says that men and women, by their own efforts, can reconcile themselves to God or that they can atone for their sin. To all such views, the answer of the cross is that no one can do this. You can't do this. I can't do this. We cannot do this. We need a redeemer. The cross is the proclamation of the insufficiency of mankind, and people dislike it because of that, for they believe in themselves and in their own power. Do you know that you need a redeemer? A Christian is a sinner who knows that they have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the shed blood of Jesus tells us a Savior and a Redeemer has come. He has suffered the death that we deserve in our place and on our behalf to make atonement for our sins. He paid a debt he did not owe to redeem us who owed a debt we could not pay. But he has redeemed us from the power and guilt of sin. He has reconciled us to God. He has purchased and secured the forgiveness of our sins. So that's the Redeemer. That's the price of our redemption. Here's the third heading, the result of our redemption. And it's a lot better than many of us think. So look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Once again, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You think, yes, Richard, we know, we know that, yes, that, that, yeah, we trust in Jesus and we, we're forgiven. We're forgiven. How great, how great do you believe this forgiveness is? Think about that. How great do you believe this forgiveness is? Or put another way, if you're honest, how thorough is this forgiveness that you have through the blood of Christ? And not what you believe is the right Sunday school answer, but you know, whenever you're laying awake in your bed at night, how thorough do you believe the forgiveness that you have in Christ really is? See, the simple answer is that there is total, complete, full forgiveness of trespasses and sins for those who trust in Jesus by faith. And the whole Bible tells us this. The whole Bible helps us understand this. And in many ways, we need the whole Bible to understand this. That why the blood of the shed blood of Christ is where our redemption is found, and why there is full forgiveness for those who trust in Christ, who have been washed in his blood. And one of the places we need to go to understand this is Leviticus chapter 16, where we can learn about the Old Testament Day of Atonement. We've already talked about how the, the Old Testament sacrifices and the entire sacrificial system point us forward to the Savior and to the Redeemer who was to come and to serve as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But I want us to think more about the Day of Atonement as we think just how thorough this forgiveness of sins in Christ is. And there in Leviticus 16, we read that the priest was to take two male goats for the sin offering. And that the blood of the first goat was sprinkled on the mercy seat, which was the golden lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box about a yard long, and it contained the stone tablets of God's law that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. And the lid of the box was called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was made of pure gold, and it had on each end of it two cherubim, or two angels, with outstretched wings that almost met over the, the center of the mercy seat. 
And God's people were to imagine God dwelling symbolically between those two wings. And so on the one hand, this reminded them of God's presence with them. God dwelling with his people. But on the other hand, it was also a picture of judgment because they were to remember that as God looked down between those wings, he looked down, he saw between the, the, the wings of the angels the law which his people had broken. But once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sprinkle the blood from the first goat killed moments before on the mercy seat. And the slain animal was a substitute that died in the place of the sinful people. And the blood sprinkled mercy seat meant that when God looked down from between the outstretched arms, uh, outstretched wings of the angels, he saw not that the law was broken, the law that we have broken, but rather God saw the blood of an atoning sacrifice had taken the punishment the people deserved. So the priest sprinkled blood on the mercy seat to show that God's justice was satisfied, that his wrath was propitiated, and that God was able to look upon the sinner with favor. However, Remember, there were two goats, and the priest would take the second goat, the scapegoat, and lay both hands on its head and confess all of the sins of the people um, over the second goat, and then that second goat was sent away outside the city, out into the wilderness, out into the desert, to never be seen ever again. And all of this points forward to Jesus and his work of redemption. All of this points forward to Jesus' work of propitiation and expiation. And these are both you know, theological words, but you can understand them. You need to understand them. Propitiation refers to Jesus' death, how it was a sacrifice to satisfy God's just and righteous justice and to turn away God's holy wrath. Expiation refers to how Jesus' death was a removal of our sins, that our sins were imputed or transferred to Jesus. He died in our place. Jesus was punished on the cross on account of our sins, and no further penalty remains. Our sins are covered. So, dear Christian, how thorough is the forgiveness of your sins through the shed blood of Christ? Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you have been forgiven, not only of the original sinfulness of your fallen nature, which you inherited from Adam, but you've also been forgiven the guilt of all your individual and daily sins. And the Bible tells you this over and over and over again. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament. I mean, listen to what these verses say. In Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 44, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Jeremiah 31, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Or Micah 7, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And in the New Testament, in Colossians 2, we read, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And then one last passage, 1 John 1, 7-9. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So in, and we can go on and on, but in summary, Richard Phillips says, Consider the price with which you were redeemed, the precious blood of the Son of God. What debt can you have that cannot be purchased by that? The answer is none. Jesus, having paid the price and suffered the punishment for your sin, what is there left for you to endure? All that is left is for you joyfully to embrace the free forgiveness of God who out of his grace redeemed you through the blood of his own beloved son. But then there's more. And here's this last section, the richness of our redemption. Look again at at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Think about that, the riches of his grace. How rich is God? Pretty rich. Henry Ironside puts it this way. How rich is God in grace? Is he a millionaire? More than that. Is he a multimillionaire? More than that. Is he a billionaire? Is he a trillionaire? More than that. Shall I go on? It is useless, for God's grace is infinite, and you and I have been blessedly saved, forgiven, redeemed, according to the riches of his grace. And notice that phrase. Go back to verse 7. Look at it. According to the riches of his grace. It says according to the riches of his grace. It doesn't say out of the riches of his grace. And there's a difference. Do you know the difference? Think about it this way. See, according to the riches of his grace is greater than giving out of the riches of his grace. So try to imagine that there was some, there was some cause that, that, that was really near and dear to your heart. You felt like this is a worthy cause, and I want to help raise money for this cause. And so you think, okay, who's the wealthiest person I know? And you go to them, and, and, and you're trying to recruit them to, to join you in giving to this cause, financially supporting this cause. And, and this person agrees, um, okay, okay, I'm going to join you in supporting it. I'm going to give to it. And so they reach into their wallet, and they pull out a $10 bill, and they give it to you. This is the wealthiest person you know, and they have given, to, they have given out of their riches. But they haven't given according to their riches. See, imagine if you went to that person and said, I've got this incredible cause. You told them about it, the wealthiest person you knew. And instead of going to their wallet, they went to their checkbook. And they signed the check and then tore it out. And they handed you a blank check and said, listen, you just fill in the rest, put, fill in the rest according to, to whatever's needed. You just put down whatever's needed, whatever's required, you fill it out. That's giving according to their riches. Do you see the difference? God has not forgiven you out of the riches of his grace. God has forgiven you according to the riches of his grace. Don't think that God is miserly towards you. Don't think he's stingy towards you. God is rich enough in his grace to give you all the grace you need. So look now at verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. See, God's grace is infinite, abundant, overflowing, and God lavishes his grace, his overflowing, inexhaustible abundance of unmerited love. God lavishes his grace without measure upon all who trust in Christ's life, death, and resurrection for their salvation. That, that, that word um, lavished 
makes me think of a never-ending waterfall of God's grace just washing over every man, woman, and child who trust in Jesus for their salvation. He lavishes it. And then look at the very next phrase, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And this is the very end, all wisdom and insight. And commentators, they, they struggle over that final phrase. Okay, what does that mean? What does all wisdom and insight mean? Some think it means that God lavishes on us wisdom and insight as an aspect or a blessing of, of his saving grace. Or put another way, that we gain wisdom and insight once we're saved. And I think there's no, there's no doubt true that, that once God saves us and he, and he gives us his spirit to indwell us and he's given us his word and his church, that we gain wisdom, we gain insight. But others think that that phrase, in all wisdom and insight, means that God pours out the riches of his grace into our lives with all of his divine wisdom and insight. All of his divine perfect wisdom and insight. And I think the latter is closer to the correct understanding. This is why it matters. God has perfect wisdom and insight into you, into all of your sin. God knows who you really are. He knows your heart. He knows the depth of your sin. He knows the depth of my sin. And God knew that our sin was such a problem that it required the shed blood of his own son to pay for our sin, to cancel our sin debt completely, to, to wash us clean from all our sin, to remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And yet God's grace and love for you, dear Christian, it, it's not a miserly love. It's not a stingy love. It's not a reluctant love. It's a lavish love. An overflowing, inexhaustible, abundant and lavish love. And that God wants you to know how much he loves you. He wants you to know just how great his grace really is for you in Christ. We're going to sing about this in just a few moments. And one of the verses goes like this. For nothing good have I, whereby your grace to claim... I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you that in Christ we have redemption through his blood. The full forgiveness of all our trespasses and sins, according to, not out of, but according to the riches of your grace, which you have lavished upon us. Father, please write these truths upon our hearts and our minds. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.